Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. It's tough to be one of the shorter guys, man. I always have to lower everything. Can you see me now? So, um, it's good to be home. I've been home with my family for about a week. But I've not been here in this building with all of you for like six weeks. And so now being here again, I truly feel back home and it's really good to be here. This morning we're going to resume our, seems like an eternal sermon series on a hundred things you should know from the Bible. And the rationale behind the series is simply this. If you're hanging out at a church for three years... There are some things we just felt you really should know in that time span that come right out of the Word of God. And we we felt urgently that we wanted to develop better biblical literacy in our congregation and whet your appetites for what a rich and exciting book the Bible is. And so uh, that's the rationale for the series. This morning we're going to look at the time when Jesus instituted something called the Lord's Supper, which is probably more familiar to most of you as communion or Holy Communion. And I want to just ask you an honest question right from the start. When you take communion at church, generally speaking, how do you feel about it? Some people on one end of the spectrum feel like it is the most incredible experience. They are floating on clouds and they're so moved whenever they take communion. Others on the other end of the spectrum are confused and completely numb. They're going, all right, so you gave me a saltine cracker and a little grape juice. I don't understand what this means. I, I, I don't know why some people next to me are so moved by this. It seems like nonsense. And so I don't know where you fall on that spectrum, but I know this, regardless of where you are on that line, your experience will be greatly enriched if you understand what the Lord's Supper really is. If you see the beauty of what it represents and what, how long of a history, a rich history, it's connected to, you'd be amazed. And so I want to review that and look into it with you this morning. If someone gave me some water, I'd be really thankful. The text today comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 29. Here's the word of God. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare For you to eat the Passover. He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, One of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Thank you. Judas who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. 
Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know, one of the last things Jesus did before the events that led to his crucifixion, his death and his resurrection, is that he shared a meal in an upper room with his closest friends. Now, sometimes we think of this as some kind of a dinner party, but it wasn't a dinner party. In fact, what they were sharing was the Passover meal. Thank you. They were sharing the Passover meal together because it was that time of the year, and the Passover meal was a very big deal. Some 200,000 pilgrims would journey into Jerusalem and flood the city. It was a time of homecoming where for us it's Christmas. We go home to see our family or maybe Thanksgiving. It was a Passover that far-flung relatives and children who'd moved away would return home. And there was lots of joyful celebration and sober reflection going on during Passover. So it was at the height of this great holy day, which really had also become a holiday for them, that Jesus chooses uh, to allow himself to be crucified. And he gathers his friends for this significant meal. Now, Leonardo da Vinci depicted it something like this. Okay, something like this. And that's a very Western thing. It's very unlikely that they had a table with a tablecloth and chairs and they were sitting upright. It's far more likely that it looks something like this, where it was a low table um, and they reclined. Literally, you would rest your shoulders and chest on, on, on the torso of the person next to you like this big circle. And that's how it was a very intimate way of eating a meal. You'd recline on each other and grab food from a low table. And so it was that kind of a setting, very intimate, very close together, in which uh, Jesus now has this last meal with them. And it's important that we don't just gloss over the fact that it was Passover that they were observing. I need to give you a little historical context on what Passover is, what it represents in the life of, of the, the Jewish people. Around 1,200 to 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, Israel was in bitter slavery under Egyptian power. And God wanted to deliver Israel from this slavery. And the way he was doing it is he was trying to put pressure on Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, to let his people go. He began to harass Pharaoh with what we now know are a series of plagues, all kinds of things that were meant to be harmful but not lethal so that he would wake up Pharaoh, get his attention, say, do you realize you're up against God who has all power? Pharaoh just kept disregarding all of the warnings that came in the plagues, and he hardened his heart and became very stubborn. So finally, God said, after nine plagues, this Pharaoh will not relent. He will not soften his heart before God. And so he sent the tenth and most devastating plague of all. He didn't send an angel, but it says in Scripture that God himself passed through the land of Egypt. And what he said is, I'm going to put to death the firstborn son in every household in this land. That's a devastating judgment on the people because in that culture, in every culture, you love your kids, all of them. 
But in that culture, the firstborn son was the one by whom your family would persist into history, by which your name would be passed down, and it was secure that everything you worked for would stay in the family. And so to have your firstborn son put to death would be a devastating blow to everyone. And what's amazing about this is that God said it's going to be pretty indiscriminate. Every house in this land, the Jews included, are worthy of this judgment because all humanity is far from me. Right now, at a human level, it may look as if the Egyptians are the oppressors and the Israelites are the victims, but in God's sight, all humanity has drifted far from him. But because he had plans for the Jewish people to use them to redeem the rest of humanity, he gave an out. And here's what he said. The night before I passed through the land to deliver this judgment of death, all of you are to gather and eat a very special meal. And in this meal were several elements. And part of it, the the centerpiece of this meal, was a lamb that was sacrificed. Its blood drained into a bowl. Its, Its flesh would be eaten. And then you would take the blood from the lamb. And he said, this is the mark that will save your household. You are to take that blood and paint the doorpost of your house, that cross beam that goes across the top of your doorway. And when I pass through the land, if I see that blood smeared over your door, I will pass over that house. I will spare everyone who lives inside. I don't care who they are, what nationality, if they're nice people or jerks, All I'm looking for is that blood painted over the doorway. This is the most non-discriminatory judgment ever. He's saying, I'm going to judge all humanity for what they deserve, but for some on the basis of no other merit than that you trusted me at my word and obeyed this, you will be spared. Now, I've got to imagine that in the land, there were some Israelites who said, what? What's a meal going to accomplish? We want to get out of slavery. Making bricks sucks big time. Let's just go. And here are all the leaders going, yeah, but you've got to do exactly like this because tomorrow night God is coming and he's going to slave. And I'm sure some Jews went, whatever. All right, you paint your door. We'll take our chances. But I'll bet there are others who love their Egyptian neighbors so much. These Egyptians may be Egyptians, but they've been decent to us. And I'm going to let them in on the secret. And so they shared it with them. And so throughout the land, there were households of all stripes who had blood painted over. And when God passed through, sure enough, he did exactly as he promised. Whether you believed in this judgment or not, it was irrelevant. When God passed through the land, the firstborn died. You know, this is the the picture that Heath made for the sermon we preached on that, that passage. But I love what Tim Keller says so hauntingly about it. That next morning throughout the land of Egypt... There was either a dead lamb or a dead son, one or the other. In every single house, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. In other words, there was either faith or there were people who lived in ignorance or an abject rebellion and faithlessness against what God gave as a way out. Israel learned a very important lesson that night about the wrath and the mercy of God. What they learned is that when God says he will do a thing, he will do it and the consequences will be devastating for those who fall outside of it. 
You cannot thumb your nose at God and say, whatever, do your worst, bring it on. You can act like a tough guy, but when God shows up, you will not feel or be very tough at all. So they learned that this God of theirs is an awesome God. Awesome meaning fear-inspiring. But they also learned that this God is a merciful God. There was no inherent merit among the Israelites that they should be singled out for special treatment. All humanity deserved this judgment. But God had plans for Israel. And for his own purposes, he gave them a way out. And that way out was not their inalienable right. It was an amazing act of mercy that there should be a provision by which some could be saved. And so they learned something important. And then God says that to them in Exodus 12, 14, this day that we're about to experience together, where you opened your eyes to who I am, where you received deliverance. This day is meant to be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. In other words, what God said is, Every year around this time, you eat that meal together and you huddle in wherever you happen to be living in freedom and you remember how you got here. Don't you ever forget that once you were slaves, but you are out now because of what I did for you. How easily we forget that we were once in bondage and then we're set free. And, that, and God knew these Israelites once they tasted the open air would think somehow a couple of years later, they somehow just got there on their own and they would very quickly begin to grumble and complain again about the quality of their lives. And so it was meant to be a standing memorial. And this is right for us to do. An, an annual remembrance of those things that are truly important. Married people, how many of you keep your anniversary pretty regularly? Man, you don't have a choice, right? He's like, yeah, whenever she reminds me. We try... Everybody, how many of you get hurt when people completely blow off your birthday? Everybody gets hurt. Nobody even said anything to me. And so, so you go and buy something really expensive to teach the world a lesson. Those annual memorials are important because they remind us to reflect on things. And so God said to them, this night is going to be the most defining night of your collective national history. And so you gather every year and you eat this meal and you always pin your hopes and your confidence to this event where you saw who I am and you learned never to disregard me again, but to know that I am a God who is fearsome but merciful at the same time. It was this meal that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. It wasn't a dinner party with macaroni salad and coleslaw and some pot roast or something like that. It was the Passover meal. In this significant historical backdrop, Jesus now sits for a final meal with his 12 closest friends. There were three key elements to the Passover meal. And the first was the bread of affliction. The second was the wine of promise. And the third was the sacrificial lamb. So you've got your beverage, your side, and your main, right? I mean, that's how it worked. And that's the whole meal. It wasn't a tasty meal. It was a meal that they had made in haste. The whole reason for the unleavened bread was it symbolized how quickly they had to run. So they didn't even have time to let the, 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 the dough rise. 
It was hard as a rock, dry as a crust. It, it wasn't a good meal. I've eaten a Seder meal, which is now the, the present-day form of the Passover meal. I ate it at Pastor Matt's house when he was here. And I had to pretty much go to McDonald's afterwards. I was like, what was that? Everything tasted awful, and it wasn't exactly filling, but that's because it wasn't a yummy, yummy, yummy meal. It was a meal meant to drive your mind to places it needs to go. So let's look at some of the elements real quick here. The bread. Jesus now takes this bread and he says, now as they were eating the bread, something they had done every year all their lives, he breaks it and after breaking, he blesses it and he, he gave it to the disciples. And listen to what he said. Take, eat. This is my body. All their lives from the time they were infants, what they were taught is this, this bread symbolizes our affliction. How hard it was when our forefathers and ancestors fled for their lives with one night to pack up all their earthly possessions. And then they wandered for years through the, the wilderness. A generation of them died out there in the desert. It was hard for us when we left Israel and found our freedom Whoa, is us, man, what a hard time. And that's what the bread of affliction was meant, was to remind them how hard it was for them. And what Jesus now says is, do you really suppose that the most important thing to remember is how hard life was for you? Your freedom will not come through the road of suffering. Just because you had a hard life doesn't mean you were entitled to salvation or some form of redemption. God bless you if you find it. But your suffering doesn't cleanse you. And so what Jesus is saying is he's reclaiming this bread and saying, forget your affliction. This is now the bread of my affliction. I'm going to go through a living hell so that you won't have to. And he meant it quite literally. He he now usurps. He takes for himself this age-old symbol for 1,500 years. The same symbol to all these generations. And he, he has the audacity to go, guess what? Everything for 1,500 years you thought about this? Wrong. This now is my affliction, my body. Now, a lot of people think that the breaking was to symbolize how his body would be broken for us. And, and that's an understandable interpretation. But the truth is, it, that is not the correct or at least the primary understanding. The function of breaking the bread was simply this. You couldn't distribute the bread without breaking it. It was a way of saying that this is not just for a few. This is something that is meant for everyone. It's broken so that each person can avail themselves of it. And that's why there's an emphasis on he broke it, and then he gave it to the disciples. I'm not alone in in believing that about the text. the, The most reliable interpretation is that the emphasis doesn't belong on the breaking, but on the distributing it to everyone. And then we have the wine. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, Jesus is pretty much upsetting everyone at this point because he's taking one of the most holy observances in their religion trained into them from their very early childhood. And he's just now, I mean, if they, if they thought he was wacko before, he just took the most sacred cow and he punched it in the face. This is my body. And now this wine, which you thought was symbolizing 
the, the lamb's blood smeared over the door. What, do you really suppose that you were all saved, your ancestors were saved because a wooly little animal was killed and its blood was splattered over the doorpost of a house? Do you really suppose that a noble lamb saved you? And what he's saying is he's reclaiming this image of wine to give it its proper significance. Red wine was always used in the Passover meal, not white wine, though they had both kinds, because red wine symbolized blood. It was by blood that the people were saved. Apart from blood, there was no redemption. And what Jesus is saying is that blood was nothing more than a foreshadowing, what we would call a promissory note pointing forward to a blood that would actually have power. The blood of a little bleeding lamb, bleeding, B-L-E-A-T-I-N-G, bleeding, is not going to save anybody. I know it's cute, it's innocent, but really what did that accomplish? All it meant was this. Your ancestors woke up in the morning and saw their firstborn sons were spared because the lamb's blood pointed forward to this day when God would, would not spare his own firstborn son. The blood of every animal spilled on the altar in Jerusalem, and by all accounts, it was caked with blood. They didn't wash it down every night like the table at Benihana's. The altar was just, it remained caked so that they said you could cut it and you could make bricks out of the clotted blood. So much blood was spilled in Israel at God's command for the atoning of sins, for the momentary, temporary lifting of God's wrath so that people could stand before God. And every single time, blood was required because without that payment, a simple waving of the hand and, sorry, my bad, would not do. No, that works in a basketball game, too. My bad. Sorry for poking you in the ribs. But when you rebel against the living God, Just a simple sorry was not enough. Real justice needed to happen. And the blood of animals was nothing more than a temporary pointing forward. Now, listen to this, though. We just gloss over because we've been trained that communion is our Passover. What if I stood here and say, by the way, that Passover, that wine is not the blood of Christ. It's my blood, guys. Your pastor who's toiling away. Imagine how offensive that would be. But he adds a further offense. He says it's my blood, but then he goes, now drink it knowing it's blood. Drink that blood. Drink it down. And I know we're thinking of Twilight and some weird vampire stuff, but I want you to know it was one of the highest prohibitions in Judaism that you do not eat the blood of an animal. What kosher means is you drain all the blood out of the animal before you ever touch its flesh. And here's the reason why you weren't supposed to drink blood. Because the life of the animal is in its blood. And as the blood spills, it's equivalent to the, the, the life force. Its gift, its offering is spilling out. And so when you drink it, you invalidate it because that offering was meant to flow freely to just spill on the ground, wasted for us. It wasn't meant to give you nutrition or pleasure. It was a pouring out. And because that animal's blood had contained its life, The Jews were forbidden to ever drink blood or eat blood. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's for that very reason that he tells them to drink. Because his life is in his blood. And what he's saying is spilling it on an altar won't do anymore. 
sprinkling it like the priests did in the original covenant, sprinkling it on the people won't do anymore. You will not be washed away. You will not be cleansed and receive new life by having something externally applied to you. You must now take it in for yourself. The very life which was in the animal will now be in you. In other words, my life, Jesus says, goes into you in the taking of communion. That would have been a shock to his disciples. But the significance of it cannot be missed. Drink it, because my life is in that blood. And then finally, the lamb. But now we've got a problem, because where's the lamb? No lamb is ever mentioned in the account of the Last Supper in any of the Gospels. It's as if Jesus takes the main course and blows it off completely. Everyone's like, all right, great, but dude, you gave us unleavened bread and wine. What does the lamb stand for? And you understand where this is going. Jesus is saying to them, do you see that I intend to be the lamb? I've been telling you guys for months now that I'm going to be killed in Jerusalem and I'll rise on the third day. You kept blowing that off like you couldn't understand what I was saying. But Jesus is telling them, I am the lamb. That lamb, which was slaughtered a million times over those 1,500 years, pointed forward to this lamb, whose blood would actually now have power to forgive once and for all. In fact, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, specifically says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Do you see that? In other words, Paul is recognizing what we should recognize, that there was no lamb at that last supper because Jesus was saying, this is why I was so looking forward to having this meal with you, to teach you that this bread you've been breaking is a symbol of my affliction, and this wine you've been drinking is a symbol of my life being poured out for you. And instead of the blood of some little white woolly animal, God's own son will spill his blood and offer up voluntarily his life in exchange for yours. Here's what, what Luke says in his account of it. He uses different language. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, and this would be the fourth cup. There were four cups uh, in, in the Passover meal. The last one was the one that came after all the food was finished. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That word new covenant is very important. And don't lose me now. I'm going to walk you through something before I wrap up the sermon that's extremely important for you to understand. When he says this is a new covenant, your first question must be what? What's the old one, right? What's the, what is this replacing? It's version 2.0. I never knew there was a version 1.0. The first covenant was made after Moses came down from the mountain and he delivered the word of God, the law, to all the Israelites. He'd gathered all these millions at the foot of a mountain. His voice must have been booming. And the acoustics in that valley must have been incredible because he just broadcasted to them. And after he declared everything God told him on the mountain about how he wants the standard of human life to look. Here's the story. I'm going I'm to have you look at it with me. <clears throat> it's a lot of text. But this is a story recorded for us in Exodus 24. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. 
He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the front of the mount, at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. These are large three-gallon bowls. And the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then listen, he took the book of the covenant, that law, which defined how God wants people to live, and he read it to the people, and they responded. This just, it's like a wedding. Do you get that? Do you promise? And they say, we do. They said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So this first covenant was about the people making a promise to God. We heard your standard We'll do our awful best. I mean, we will honestly do the very best we can. We will try to do everything you've said. And then Moses, to seal it, took the blood of all those sacrificed animals in three-gallon bowls, and he took a, a, a big brush, probably a tree branch, and he just started sprinkling it on the people. And according to ancient historians, this was not some kind of Presbyterian baptism where little, and you, got, you can kind of brush it off in the parking lot. This was people like this, and he just showering them with blood. In some translations, the word is actually threw it on them. He may not have even used the branch. He might have just went, think Carrie. Remember the movie? Think that. The people left that worship service in the original covenant drenched in the blood of the animals whose lives had been leaked out, bled out for them. And in that blood was a symbolic sense of sealing. This covenant is sealed with blood. And he said, he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. He told you how to live. You promised you'd do it. And then we killed a bunch of animals and sprinkled the blood on you. This is the original covenant is that God showed the standard. You promised you'd try to jump as high as you can. Here's the problem with the old covenant. It only worked in one direction. God never changed. He was faithful to his end of it. But the people within hours or minutes of saying those words before the blood had even dried failed to keep that promise, didn't they? How many of you can say to God, everything you said, I will do? Is there anyone in this room who feels confident that they've actually honored that even for a 24-hour day in their lives? I'm asking an honest question. I'm not trying to trap you. If you are, I want to buy you lunch and I want to learn the secret. So the problem with the first covenant is that it pinned everything on the commitment of people to God. And there was a point to that. God was trying to demonstrate this whole law thing is to prove to you you're so fallen, you can't do it. You need me to save you. When will you see that? And so they killed a lot of animals for a lot of years. But the first covenant was broken. Around six to 800 years after that, we're talking like, two to three times as long as America's been around. That much time elapses. And then a prophet named Jeremiah comes on the scene. And having seen these centuries of failure to keep the covenant, here's what God says to the prophet Jeremiah. This is awesome. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. It won't be on stone tablets or in the law books. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For listen to this, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What God is saying through Jeremiah is he recognizes how hopeless that first covenant was because for all their good intentions, people would never be able to obey the Lord like that. If you've ever thought that you did, you were mistaken. The covenant cannot rest on us because we will break that promise. I assure you, we will. Every one of you who is married has already broken your vow in your heart, haven't you? Haven't you? Every vow we make, we break. In fact, that seems to be what vows are all about, is to remind us of our moral frailty and the need for someone to make us better, more righteous than who we thought we were. It's important to understand then, as Jesus now says, I am, six to eight hundred years now after Jeremiah, he says, I am the one that Jeremiah was talking about. Remember that new covenant that Jeremiah taught you to wait upon? It's here now. It's my blood. What I'm about to do this weekend is for all of you. And here's what he said. It is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's important to remember that Jesus dying on the cross was not merely a demonstration of his great love for us. You were probably taught in Sunday school, what does the cross teach us, boys and girls? It's a demonstration of how much God loves us. Well, you know what? So is a tattoo with my girlfriend's name on it, all right? All right? Steve, you got a, a Mia tattoo on your arm anyway? What's the matter? It's on your back? All right. So that's a demonstration of love. Check it out, girl. I, you know, that's permanent. You know what I'm saying? So if you leave me, I'm going to look like a donkey. Please don't leave me. That's a demonstration of love, a strong show of force. Look how much I love you. It was a demonstration of, but that's not all it was. It actually accomplished something. It wasn't just a demonstration, but the death of Jesus actually accomplished something. It wasn't symbolic, but a very important thing happened in the universe. That all who fell under the protection of this blood smeared not over the doorpost of a building, but over our hearts in faith and trust. That blood covering a person would now cease forever the need for another animal to give up its life. This blood was powerful blood because it was once for all time. He would say through this blood, it is for the forgiveness of sins, not the postponement of God's wrath but for the lifting of the stain. This doesn't simply delay the trouble that's coming, as all those animal sacrifices once did. But once and for all, a human being can look before God and say, I am as clean as the day I was born. In fact, cleaner. Can you imagine being whiter 
than snow? Especially if you're an ancient Jew who saw snow maybe once in your life from a distance on top of a mountain. But that's what we are. We are whiter than snow, purer than the day you were born because of what Jesus would do as he covers the doorpost of your heart with this blood, which is the new covenant, better than the old one, because now what he's saying is this new covenant has nothing to do with your commitment to God. It doesn't rest on how good of an effort you make, but it rests completely on how faithful a son Jesus was to his father. It was substitution for you. Not just him dying in your place, but him also living in your place. And then everything he had, he substituted and gave it to you. This is the new covenant. It rests entirely on the commitment of God to us. See, whenever the Jews offered sacrifices on the altar, it was just pushing the inevitable back just a little longer. But the writer of Hebrews, and I'll I'll bring it to a close here, Listen to what he writes. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. That's a very clear statement. All that temple worship, all that animal sacrifice, it didn't really work. It didn't actually cleanse anyone. For that old system deals only with food and drink and ritual washing. External regulations that are in effect only until their limitations can be corrected. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that great, perfect sanctuary in heaven, not made by human hands and not part of this created world. And listen to what it writes. This this just drips with hope for us. Once for all time, he took blood into that most holy place, but not the blood of goats and calves. He took his own blood, and with it, he secured our salvation forever. That's what Jesus did for us. If you've forgotten it, this is the most important thing for you to remember in your life. My prayer and it should be yours too, is that if I ever get afflicted with Alzheimer's, may the only thing I remember before I die be that Jesus saved me. What else do you need to know in this world to feel like you can get up in the morning and actually have hope to draw another breath? And on what basis do we sit in this building on Sundays and sing songs that that reveal us to be liars? Where you go, I'll follow. You are everything to me. One way, Jesus, I will humble myself before we we sing all these songs. On what basis do we dare sing such lies? Except that every day we're also reminded, every time I fail, this is my hope. That there was a time when Jesus carried his own blood into the most holy place. And once for all time, he purchased my salvation. You forget that, and your spiritual life will be on a slow descent into death. This is the gospel, and if you forget it, 
that spark of vitality in your heart, it will fade. That's why we do communion. That's why Jesus linked this Lord's Supper to the Passover to remind us that it always points first to the failure of the old covenant and the futility of saying, I will, I will, I will do my best. He says that covenant for 1,500 years stood as an object lesson in failure on human beings' parts. But now in this new covenant, I forgive you. This is the word of God. And then Jesus said, do this now, not the Passover ever again. You could do it as a matter of historical interest. But when I took that Passover meal, I wasn't remembering my ancestors leaving Egypt or anything like that. It was just for me to understand what the Jews were doing. But when I take communion, it is for me a holy thing. And it is also that for you. It is a tangible act of obedience where we set ourselves to remember. And so we're going to take communion. And as we get ready to do that, I want to just direct your mind in a couple places, okay? I want you, at the occasion of every communion you'll ever take, to concretely remember Jesus. He said it almost like a boyfriend about to leave for a long-distance relationship. Now he goes, hey, girl, come on, I'm going to Iraq to fight for you. Remember me. You better, you better not forget, girl. You, I'm going to be out there. You, you behave. You remember me. What God is saying is, I'm about to leave you in person. This flesh and blood that walked among you is going to be invisible to you now. But don't forget. Remember me. And part of what he's saying is, don't just remember what I did. Actually use the Lord's table as an occasion to say, man, if I don't remember Jesus every day, meaning include him in the fabric of my life, be mindful of him, then in effect I will be in a Christless existence. He's saying use the Lord's table to set your heart and mind to actively remember Jesus at all times. Remember me, he said. Can I just ask you an honest question? Are you mindful of him? Does he have a place in the ebb and flow of your everyday life? Is Jesus an appointment you keep Sunday morning at 10? Or is Jesus every day an indispensable companion on this journey? It also is to receive. You know, we don't take the bread and go, now everyone come to the table, smell the bread, dip your finger in the wine and sit down. We don't do that. You eat it, you drink it, and as you do, that substance becomes part of the flesh and blood of your own body. Some of that juice or wine will flow through your veins in another form. And that piece of bread will be responsible for at least a good millimeter more on your waistline. It's part of you. And the invitation there is when you eat it, as you're chewing, as you're drawing this material into your own flesh, remember that this faith is not a casual faith that you paint on the surface of your life. It's all in. You are to fully engage, to internalize this way of life, to eat the faith, to eat the book. Do you realize that's a phrase even in the scriptures? Eat the word of God. It is your daily bread. Eat this faith. Fully take it into you. Never dabble in the Christian faith. That's not what kind of faith this is. It's also an invitation to rejoice. And this, I just need to look at some of you and tell you, you are way too much inside your own head 
how confining and lonely it must get in there because you've decided somehow along the way that the whole world is defined by your little brain. That all your thoughts, all your experiences represent the whole of the earth. And if you make that choice day after day to live in your own head, you will never see the full glory of God. So he's saying, remember in all the little things that you had on your mind before you came to this table, that at this table, you rejoice that for everything bad I can complain about in my life, one thing is unshakably true. Jesus loves me. He died to save me. When I breathe my last on this sorry toilet of a planet, I will be with him forever. That you can never take away from me. It is rejoicing, choosing to rejoice. And do you know in the ancient Passover, the people would gather and after the meal was over, they would pour out into the streets. They would meet their neighbors. They would have happy reunions and they would party in the streets till midnight and then the temple gates flung open at midnight and they'd all rush in and worship all through the night. It was a joyful time. Passover and the Lord's table are invitations to rejoice, to get out of your own head and out of the muck and mire of your limitations and say, at least this will always be true. I have Jesus and my eternity is secure. And lastly, it's an invitation to rededicate your heart. Isn't that really the point of birthdays and anniversaries? It's so funny when dating couples are like, this is our like two and a half month anniversary. You know, they're, just, they're looking to mark these, these landmark milestones. Why? Because when you mark that date, it's a way of saying, I'm still here with you. Guys, I know that sometimes you almost forget your anniversary and then your wife gently reminds you to remember. But when you're at that dinner, that you know, $800 dinner, and, and she's in her great dress and you're sitting across the table, what do you do? You sit there and eat and look around and just go, hey, the food here kind of is all right. It's overpriced. And, no, you're having a meaningful conversation. You're remembering, girl, I'd still marry you again. Mmm, you look fine. I... You're saying to her, if I could do it all over, I would still choose you every single time. And this anniversary is a day where I set my entire mind to remember, you are my bride. You are my husband. We chose each other once. What happened? Well, I, I choose to choose you again right now. And on that occasion, we are invited to rededicate ourselves to something that once meant so much to us. At this table... You are being invited to rededicate your life to the one who bought you at a terrible price. And so these are four. I don't, normally don't do this, this kind of Baptist alliteration, but you know what? Four R's came to me. I think it was the Holy Spirit. I just saw them in my mind. I was like, yes, these four things, I really invite you. And I'm going to leave it on the screen. And we're going to do communion in a slightly different format today. We're not going to do it like this every time. There's a joyful communal aspect to communion when we do it most days at harvest. But today I'm going to invite you to have some solitary reflection at the Lord's table. In order to keep the linkage to the Passover meal as close and realistic as possible, now that you understand the theology behind it, we've chosen to offer real wine today. So for some of you, this is the first time you will drink alcohol at church. Don't make a habit of it. It's a special occasion. And so here's what's going to happen, okay? We've also got not the usual Hawaiian bread or dinner rolls, but we have unleavened bread or reasonable facsimile 
thereof. And you're going to sit at your seats and you'll prepare your heart as music is playing. And then if and when you feel genuinely ready to do this, just approach one of these tables. There's a table on the wing there, a table on the wing over there, and then a larger table here in the middle area. And there's seats placed at all of them. Just go and find an empty chair at one of them. And as you sit down, one of the elders of our church will serve you the elements. If you put your cup, this is important. You've got to pay attention to this part, okay? Especially you youth group kids. If the cup is upright, you'll get wine. If for some reason, because you're underage, youth group kids don't even try it, right? Um, or if you're with child or for other reasons, you just put it like this, and they'll turn it over and give you grape juice instead. Is that, is that easy enough? Upright, you're going to get wine. That's what's in these carafes over here. Or like this, you're going to get juice. And then you get one of these. And at the table then, just be mindful that others are waiting for your seat. So take a few minutes. And, well, not a few minutes. Take less than a minute. Reflect, go through some of these things, and then eat the elements as you're looking at the screen, thinking through this stuff. Say a quick prayer and then return to your seats to continue the meditation while others come and take the empty seat. I'm told that this form of communion was very common in the Scottish Presbyterian revivals, and people were greatly blessed by doing this. And so we want to try it this week. And we're just going to get the music going, and I want to invite you to just, just now you know, calm your heart. Some of you will recognize the song because we play it every time we do communion. It is one of my favorite songs. And the reason we loop the same song is so that the music itself does not distract you or become a new stimulus coming in. But we want the same song just looping so that in its background, you can relate to God. Okay? And I'm going to invite the elders, if you would, to now just come and take your positions behind your respective tables. And as Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.